Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. Today's guest is Lena Winslow. Lena's moment of chaos started at the age of seven. Growing up in the Ukraine, the Chernobyl nuclear meltdown changed everything for her in a moment. Listen in to her story today as she shares about the learning to trust, the acceptance and the courage created out of learning to lean into those messy moments in life. So welcome, Lena, to the Bravery Academy. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for making this space. And I'm really excited to see what comes up. Mm, I am too. So to start with, let's find out where you are from and then where you live right now. Okay. So I was born and raised in Kiev, Ukraine, up until 15 years old. And now I live in sunny Florida in the United States. And we've been here for... 10 years and several other places in the state before that. Mm -hmm. um, My family and I, and we're having a great time in the sun. Amazing. It sounds gorgeous over there. And then what about for you, your time in the Ukraine? Tell me about what your upbringing was like over there. So I was raised by a family of very career-oriented mom and dad. My mother was a physician specializing in four different specialties. Wow. And as a child, I grew up watching her dedicate herself to helping others and also kind of dipping my toe in doing some of the stuff myself because, you know, being in a city where you didn't rely on having cars, I could use public transportation and get to where I wanted to go. And I could go to my mom's job and help her take blood pressures and pulses and all these different patients that she was taking care of. And that was still okay to do. What was it like living in the Ukraine? So when I was little, it was still under the Soviet Union umbrella. So Ukraine was not an independent country. And as a child, there was not really a whole lot of things to say about the government landscape per se. I just could tell that it was really 
tough for my mom and dad to be able to continue to work, provide the things that they wanted to provide for the outside world in their vocation, but then also have time for me. And as a result, I kind of felt like I was raising myself for the most part. I, as typical girls in that area, took ballet for many, many years. And I started being able to get myself from place to place on my own at a ripe old age of seven or eight years old with buses and metros and kind of developed that independence. And in as much as we see that as a hardship now, I feel like that was part of building who I am today. And I wouldn't necessarily change it or get up. So you an only child? No, I have a sister. My sister is six years younger than me. So I had quite a bit of time of growing up before she came along. And now it's interesting because when my sister was born, it was right around the time Chernobyl had a nuclear meltdown. And that was just about 70 miles from Kiev where we live. And she ended up having an opportunity to stay with my grandmother in a different public. So at that young age, she was taken away from Kiev and your home, and you were kept in that area near Chernobyl. Right. So it happened in uh, later spring. So I did go visit my grandma and grandpa every summer. So shortly after the accident, I did go see them for three months because it was my time to do it. But... It was eerie to watch. I remember that day that my mom came home from work and she's always a bubbly person. There was never anything that that got her down and I could see there was something bothering her and something kind of dark and eerie in the air as she sat down to take off her shoes in the front. We lived in this tiny little room. It was 12 meters by 12 meters. And we had a dog named Dana, Scottish setter. And she sat down to take off her shoe and looked over at me and said, Lena, I don't want you to go play outside anymore. Don't go out until I sleep. Obviously, there was no social media at the time, so things were not as quick to disseminate like they are now. And because my mother was a doctor and she was hearing and probably seeing people come through from 70 miles away with unknown injuries. She just told me not to go out. And I knew it was something eerie because we lived in a tiny little room. So being able to go out was part of life. And then I started seeing trucks come through the streets and washing windows and dampening down the dust and the dirt in the street. And a couple of days later, my mother came home from the hospital uh, with this device. And it's interesting because I became a nuclear scientist because I wanted to know all of these things. She brought home a Geiger counter, which is that device to measure radiation with. And she started walking around our tiny little room, our apartment. And our dog had long hair. And she really pegged that meter with radiation. So that was, from as far as I can remember, my very first real loss 
that I experienced because the dog had to go live with somebody else that had outdoor space for her because we couldn't, we were on the third floor. So she would have to come down, do her thing and come back up and stay in that tiny little space. And it just couldn't happen. That was my personal memories of that time. And, you know, the airplane travel and train stations shutting down and people panicking and we're just kind of waiting to hear what happens and wondering what happens to the earth because Ukraine is very famous for raising crops. So a big question is going to be how is that going to go after that? And it just kind of unraveled after a few years and became clear, but it was very uncertain for the moment. How did that feel to you as a child? You know, it's interesting because I have studied and I know a lot now. So looking back in hindsight, I could see that in that moment where my mom came home and it felt uncertain and eerie and she was telling me not to go outside. I think I bumped into that mode of logic and knowledge and being able to solve pretty much almost anything by thinking it through, dissecting it on the scientific level and making it safe for myself and my family. So, so it came down to safety right from the start. Yeah. And, and I remember before that, it was about feeling things and having, having some kind of dream work and life and, and, and figuring out what it is that I really want to do. And then at some point it just flips into the logic. And in my case, now I feel like that's a beautiful synergy to have both. Hmm. But as a child, I retreated into safety and into being able to know what to do, when to do it and be perfect at everything. It's interesting looking at this from parallels of what's happened in the world the last few years, right? And the world shut down in a different way with COVID. And it's mm-hmm. this like thinking of our children now, you being a mother, my being a mother as well. And like how that impact for you, there was less play. There was less like just joy and being the innocence of it changed. And so how did that evolve for you over the next few years? So the next few years were equally as tumultuous because my mother ended up with a breast cancer diagnosis. And I was 15 at the time, and that was the year I was in the United States for my first exchange year. And automatically, everyone reverted to thinking that the reason, because we had to have a reason, we had to have a scientific breakdown of why things happened, that the reason was going to be Chernobyl. And in a way, that was one of the reasons she was sponsored to come to the States to get her treatment. And again, because I was in school here for that year and I spoke better English than she did, I walked through every single doctor's appointment, every single scan. Like I had to be in the scan room telling her to hold her breath when they took her x-rays. So it was not just, you know, come in and there as a family member with an integral part of her treating team. And knowing all of that and looking through the lens of a healthcare provider at that age, I decided to major in nuclear medicine, radiation science. That was my way of figuring out what was happening and how I was going to 
need it. And eventually my mother's cancer diagnosis took over and she ended up having a year. It was in the hospital room and I was holding her hand. And that was still a time where I was functioning pretty much in that logic stage and I was going to solve everything. And if you were going to talk about turmoil, it didn't really hit me until several years later. As I look at my life as a whole, I'm 43 years old now, and uh, we're not even done talking about all the things that led me to where I am. But I am grateful because I can look back and list out actually did this. There's at least 12 experiences in my life that I would consider a great loss. First one being losing my dog. But at this point in my life at 43 years old, as I look back at those 12 experiences, in the time that I did this exercise, I could see the the growth and the opportunities and the things that came out of them immediately in at least nine of them. And three more took me about two or three weeks of deeply thinking to find that nugget of what did this thing teach me? And why was I meant to go through it? And what am I supposed to do with it going forward? That brings a lot of acceptance when you move into that space, when you go into that post-traumatic growth. And that's very hard with grief to do that. It's so challenging, but a really powerful process to do. Well done. Takes a long time. So transitioning from your loss of your mum, how did that unfold for the next few years for you? So, of course, I dove straight into all the studies and I was always sitting at the front of the classroom, learning all the things and checking all the boxes and dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. You know, there was a, an a incredible amount of success being a student. And then I was married in that time frame. And my first child came along after I was working in the field for about a year. And when she was born, we were, of course, overjoyed to have a little girl first because I always wanted a little girl. And she's 17 now. <laughs> But when she was born, I started noticing some things little by little, and there were some developmental delays, and we eventually ended up with an autism diagnosis for my Catherine. And any specialist that I would go see would say, no, wait and see. And you know what? For me, for my science brain and, and my heart at that moment, let's see what happens was not an answer. And so I started looking outside of the box. I started looking outside of the peer-reviewed scientific studies on our main area where scientists publish them all. And I started realizing that, you know, those published studies are incredibly important and, and, and wonderful and valuable, but it takes about 10 years for any sort of change to filter through to the end end result for a patient, for one single person. And for me, it was my daughter. And so I started living on that cutting edge of what are people doing for this diagnosis and how, how can I help her now without waiting 
for the science community to catch up with different things? And what was I willing to do and experiment with to, to help her? And, you know, of course, there's, there's diet interventions. There's all sorts of things that we did. We explored many different areas, integrative medicine, and we've had great success. This girl is a jibber jabber. She talks about pretty much anything and everything. She knows exactly what she wants. She has a boyfriend. She's 17 now. And she loves animals. And there's just so many things that I feel like were able to be brought into her life because we did all of those things to help her in the beginning. So that parenting process has obviously taught you a lot, being a fierce mama bear then coming in and fighting for them and getting the best outcome for them. How has it evolved for your other children as well? So I never, ever, ever had a plan to homeschool my children. Not once in my life did I ever look at myself in the mirror and say, I'm going to homeschool my children. (laughs) My nightmare slightly thinking about that, but you did it. So the reason I did that with my daughter is because I just couldn't find a placement that I felt was appropriate for her. And, you know, we're all unique, but, but her unique was, um, definitely outside of the box of what the typical education system could provide. So I rolled up my sleeves and I decided I was going to do what I could. And when she started kindergarten, first grade, I was pregnant and my first son was born and we just kind of rolled with it. And as he was growing up, I was teaching her and he was picking up all of these little bits and pieces of information because I was teaching her, but he was there. And he ended up learning so much faster because I was presenting the material in such a way that was really easy to grasp for a typically developing brain. And when it was time for him to go to kindergarten, he was two years ahead and I couldn't bring myself to sending him to a place that wasn't going to challenge him. And, you know, all of that kind of fell into homeschooling my boys as well, but for a very different reason. But when you were talking about COVID, like we were already in the throes of all of this. So COVID didn't change us. That's amazing. keep doing what we already did was a greatest gift. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty, 
we know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. So I'm 38 years old and I have all these little ones in my house and I find a lump in my left breast completely accidentally. I wasn't even doing mammograms at 38. And in that moment, my mind flashed straight back to the journey that I walked with my mom, that I walked logically, medically, and I could see this almost like a movie tape of what went on, and I could kind of unfold it in the forward motion to see what was coming. And of course, went into the doctor's office, did the biopsy. And uh, Friday, before a long three-day weekend, the doctor called and it came. And I, my first step was, I literally just sat down. And uh, then I found my mom treating oncologist was still practicing, but she wasn't practicing as an oncologist. She was working as a genetic patient. So we got in the car. And we went to see her. And it turns out that Chernobyl had nothing to do with it. <laughs> the whole thing had a genetic component. And in that appointment, this woman who has had the front row seat in a lot of these stories for me looked at me. She said, I want you to know her story is not your story. I kind of thought about it and I went back to my local medical team and they presented me with to do and when to do it. There were surgeries, there were chemo treatments, there were specific drugs that they were suggesting. And I have a contemplation closet <laughs> and I'm sitting there and it's hiding away underneath and I've got all the lists. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to pick my story. Come on. Like lightning bolt. Show me what it is that I'm supposed to pick. Here's this line, this line, and this line. And I heard, I, I can't tell you, like it was coming from within me. And it was a perfectly clear sentence that I didn't logically form. And here comes the next one. Ready for this one? Yep. It said, Lena, you are not big enough to screw this up because I've got you. And in that moment, I was able to say, okay, logic brain, you get your pick. You pick whichever one you want to pick and we will be okay. So I picked it and I did surgery. I did four months of chemotherapy. I chose a lot of things unconventionally. I literally looked back at my journey through 
autism with my daughter and applied those integrative concepts that helped her in her ability to keep her gut healthy, to maintain brain health, to avoid things like a typical issues with neuropathy after chemotherapy. I plugged all of that into my care, told my medical team that that was going to parallel my journey. And this was the place where I could see every single thing that ever happened to me come to a resolution in in helping me survive. And I told myself that there is a reason why I get to walk this and I get to be on the other side of it. And it's not a nuclear reason, so to speak. It doesn't just involve my nuclear family. It has to involve things outside of that, which is why we're here today. I have tears. They're tears of um, absolute just awe for you. The tears of my sisters, both my sisters have been through the same journey and they are amazing. Both have breast cancer. Yeah. So when I hear those stories, I think of other women that may be wherever they are on that journey because it's one of the, the scariest processes. But because you'd been through that, I just hear this courage, deep, deep courage in you that went, I'm going to do this. I'm going to work through it. I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. It is so much about that deep belief on a soul level. The incredible part of the story is every time I settled on a decision of how it was going to go in the future, and I didn't know how it was going to work, a chance, uh, a tool or, or some kind of help appeared. So I talked to my medical team about the hair and apparently there's this thing called the cold cap have you yep. ever heard of a cold cap we did it with my sister in london so she oh, who's going to be word. she's going to be editing this listening to it later and i i went over and helped her from new zealand to travel uh-huh. to london for her third round of chemo she knows that this was one of those moments where we just connected in a very weird way because she'd chosen to do the cold cap to help try and get her through it right to see if it would make a difference again for the children to not look different and she did have an amazing wig that she used sometimes i think she called herself Halliger or something it became the alter ego it was always playful and fun and she just was so brave going through that process but the the cold cap thing i didn't really know much about it, even though i've had a background in this as physio and chemo stuff with my my work that i did but seeing it in action and she's like you've just got to be you've got to get me through this you've got to kind of support me through this I'm trying not to laugh with it on her head because it looks so intense. I was like, all I could think of was you look like Genghis Khan with like this like cold cap thing. And I didn't want to say anything. And then she's like, you should have said it. It would have made me laugh and get through it afterward. And it was like the pain of it for you. The pain. Right. It was a lot of hours. But you know what? As a ballerina with the toes and all the things, that was nothing. <laughs> amazing what we put ourselves through though to do that and i was just like that it's also got that fight response with it you know it's phenomenal right but but see that the whole idea of choosing your own path like to be honest i probably didn't want to lose my hair either i didn't necessarily care as much 
until it was causing extra pain for my child. And at that point, I was like, okay, let's breathe my head. And then I also froze my fingers and my toes to get rid of the neuropathy too. But um, so that that moment and and many others where I could see that I can pick my road. I can pick and I can see myself in the future of what it is that I want without necessarily knowing the steps and how to get there and trust. That was the big, huge overarching theme of this adventure was trust. I had to trust that I wasn't the only person that was put here on earth to care for my children. I had to trust that they were going to be okay. So a lot of that process was around navigating for your children as well as yourself and your husband. It was a very scary time for actually both of us because he ended up with health issues on top of mine at the same time. So there was a moment where I just had surgery and he just had surgery. And I took this picture of us just holding hands with all these IVs sticking out of us. <laughs> but we, we made it through. So this is our 24th year of marriage. And he has walked this road with me in just as, as, as brave of a way. Very special to have that support along the way. How has it shaped now what you do? So now, of course, my logical brain didn't go anywhere. And it told me that I had to get all the certifications and all the degrees and all the things. So as soon as I finished my chemo treatment and... So my type of cancer is um, a really high risk of recurrence right off the bat. Like in the minute that you finish treatment, it usually comes back really quickly or it lets you go. So in that first year after treatment, I was thinking, so, okay, I know I've got a year. What are we going to do with it? <laughs> and so we decided he took some time off work and we took a trip um, to Europe. We spent a month with all of our children doing all the different things. And at the conclusion of that trip, sitting in, um, I think I was in Paris at the time, and I remember I had my iPad, and I typed up my application to a university to go back to school and study integrative health coaching. And I hit send, and I think it was done on purpose because I wanted to signify the moment of you know, I see, I see more than a year. I see more than that going forward. And I'm going to put pen to paper and send it out into the world. So I got accepted and then studied and I studied some more and, and we ended up in lockdowns and I studied some more. <laughs> and uh, finally, I uh, took my national board certification and now I work as an integrative homes coach. Maybe you can talk more about what that looks like, this whole health integrated process. What does that even cover for people that are going, I don't understand that. How is that different? So it's different because you're taking a whole person into the consideration. So you're looking at aspects like nutrition, but you're also looking at relationships. You're looking at your exercise, but you're also looking at your environment. 
and not just your environment in terms of where do you live physically, but also your inner, um, your mindset, your environment that you live in and your brain with your thoughts and what you allow yourself to think and ruminate. And when you look at the integration of all these pieces, you start realizing that um, if you focus on one, so let's say we focus on exercise, right? The minute you start regularly exercising, you start reaching for healthy foods, right? So your nutrition um, quotient goes up. The minute you start eating healthier foods, you start demanding a healthier thought pattern to go with it. So you dive into some education, maybe some books, maybe some coaching, and develop that aspect. And the minute you do that, then maybe a spirituality aspect comes in and you start thinking about um, deeper and bigger things other than your your current reality and how big you are in this world, right? And um, so when 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 I hear the word integrative, what I literally see is this string of concepts that complete the entire person and their life experience. And the truth of the matter is you pick any one of those and you start directly affecting it with your choices, all the rest of it goes up. And um, it kind of echoes in, in autism where when I was trying to learn and, and decide which aspect of developmental delays I was dealing with with my daughter and the, the litmus is let's work on all these things that she struggles with. And what it turned out to be and what I ultimately decided to do is work on the thing that she did and assume that the thing that she struggles with is attached to the thing that she's good at. And if I'm going to take that positive um, line that she already strives and loves to do, the thing that she needs to learn is going to travel upwards with it as you build up positive. Is that, did that, did I explain that for, yep. for the listeners well enough? Because I think you did. I think it, it all rises through because, you know, when you get those habit changes and whatever that building block is, as you get more uh, success and autonomy and confidence in that area, then it allows you to see, well, maybe this is going to shift or I can do more in this, in this space. So it's a space of positivity instead of negativity is what I'm hearing. Right. So if you focus on, and when I work with clients, um, everybody automatically assumes that they should be picking the area that they're most deficient or they feel the most deficient in. But the truth of the matter is you pick any one of them. And if you pick the one you love to do, the trajectory is faster and, and bigger than if you pick the one that feels like a slog. I think I'd love to know from your big experiences, what are the three, and this is challenging, three takeaways that you take away from those experiences? So as an overarching theme for these three, will say that you brought up the word fighting and that was an instrumental place where I pivoted because I chose not to fight. Yeah. And it might be controversial 
because a lot of the messaging out there says, you know, you're going to kick cancer's butt and do all of these things in a fighting way. And in my mind, from the very beginning, it was more of coming alongside this thing that is scary that I don't want in my life walking beside it and learning all you can from it so that you can grow and leave it behind. And the, the image that came to me was about, you know that, oh, what's the name of that mythical creature that has like, if you chop one head off, 10 more grow in. That was the image that I had in my mind about fighting and I didn't want that. So, so as an overarching, that was the big takeaway for any struggle or hardship that you would go through is is that you scientifically dissect it see what it's there to teach you might take years but being willing to do that so that might be my number one number two is this idea of trust and trusting yourself to make the choices and once you trust yourself you can trust everyone else in your team because you trust yourself to make that choice. Don't trust your team to make the choice for you. You make the choice. And number three, probably what I would do is bring up one of our very inherent fears as humans is that abandonment and separation and talk about how that specific concept builds into a person they can have community around that can see beyond yourself. And some of those hardships allow you to do that. Because when you're in that specific place and in, in the ditch, so to speak, you see who surrounds you and see who is with you. And I think step number one is not to abandon yourself. Thank you so much, Lena. If anybody wants to work with you, how do they do that? I do have a website. It's Winkler. And I'll put that in the show notes so that if you're feeling called to taking a step or learning what this coaching process could be, then they can discover it. What does bravery look like to you? A really good question. Bravery. It's not an act of bravery in itself. I am not out there being brave. I am out there going through fear while afraid. A fear response is built into every human. It is a survival mechanism. But being able to see it for what it is, look it in the eye and know that there is something bigger and better on the other side. And being able to just maybe not charge through, maybe slowly push through, but yet still make progress one little step at a time. That's bravery. Bravery. 